So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello Man fans, I'm Ollie Mann and this is The Modern Man, your monthly mix of trends, music, life stories and sex advice. And here is what we've got for you today. Do I look like I'm enough for people? Do I look like I'll be feminine enough for people? Will people actually even believe that I'm trans? Hormones, pronouns, surgeons and fetishists. What to expect when you're transitioning. Plus... It is the law that condoms have to have at least a five-year shelf life. Alex Fox says it isn't sleazy being green, and Ollie Peart joins the great unwashed. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and hello to Sarah in Dursley. Sarah, this isn't a dream. I really am talking to you now through your headphones. Uh, She says, Hi Ollie, last night I dreamt I bumped into you at the bottom of a stairwell and gave you a fiver. (laughs) Clearly, my subconscious was feeling guilty for not having donated sooner. Uh, She has then transferred a survivor on PayPal. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, A small price to pay, she says, for my favourite podcast, The Modern Man Has Pipped the Radio 4 Food Programme. Blimey. And I love my food. Uh, Really, that is high praise indeed, Sarah. My favourite podcast, genuinely one of my favourite podcast episodes every year, is that one they do at Christmas, where a load of critics sit around and talk about their favourite cookbooks. I don't know what it is about a load of people I don't know discussing the photography from barbecue books that I can't see that I love so much, but I bloody love it. So uh, that means a lot that we would displace them on your uh, pod feed. Thank you. Uh, Loads of you getting in touch about the zeitgeist last month, Mr. Peart's investigation of being child-free by choice. Uh, Gwen, for example, says, Ollie, I listened with huge interest to your discussion. I'm 25. When I was in my teens, I assumed I'd have kids by now, but I hated the idea of labour. I was downright terrified of having to birth a child. And in my early 20s, I researched into adoption. Only slowly did I realise, if I don't want to be a parent, I don't have to. I cannot express what a relief this realisation has been. Uh, Gwen, I'm very glad that you now know what you want. Or what you don't, I guess. <laughs> uh, Lottie, meanwhile, says, My husband and I don't want biological children because the part of parenting we want to experience is that of raising a child, not having our genetic material reproduced. I found it difficult to listen when you speculated about this potentially springing from something difficult in our childhoods. It's not the case for us at all. I think many people are just looking at what being a parent means rather than assuming conception is the path you have to take. Uh, And Heather says, I'm 46, I have autism. I've been firm in my child-free status since my mid-twenties, but unlike some child-free people you discussed, I'm actually really interested in hearing about parenting and kids. I just feel about children the way I feel about dogs. I like spending time with them, and then I like giving them back to their parents. Uh, Thank you for all of those. Uh, And a, a big special thanks to those of you who have donated financially to the show this month. Honestly, we realise times are tight. We really appreciate it. Big, socially distant hugs and sloppy kisses through face masks to you all, uh, including David Hutchinson, Megan Velo, Jill Pythian, Vivian Gollings, David Trainer, and Jali Chandra, and James Rhodes, our ambassador from Guam, uh, who has redonated to the show. Uh, if you can afford to send us some cash in return for this podcast, we are independent, we're funded by your donations and some limited sponsorships, then please, please do uh, head to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, uh, click Beer Money, and feel fucking great. Right, in this month's show, you will learn what Project Geldon is, uh, you'll learn how long it takes to be seen by a gender dysphoria clinic, and you'll learn what Meg Matthews makes her bottles out of. Let's go.
Time for the zeitgeist, your trends tested, with Ollie Peart. Hi, Ollie. Uh, for once, Ollie, I'm very pleased that we're remote recording this and not in the same room, uh, because I don't have to smell you. I don't actually smell. Spoiler. Okay, well, you were worried last month that your hair would smell like a bin. That's a quote. Mm. <laughs> so let's find out how you went with uh, Dan from Suffolk's Challenge, which was to explore the trend of people not washing their hair and to see if you could go a whole month without washing. And uh, but just to be clear, I have been washing my hands with soap. Okay. I don't know how we managed not to say that last time. But yes, that's an important proviso during a global pandemic. Yes. Mm -hmm. He was not asking you not to wash your hands. (laughs) That would be foolish. But yes, this challenge was based on the idea that, well, firstly, not washing your hair is a trend. Is that really true? Yeah, it's true. And actually, it's been around for quite a while. It's called the no poo movement. And the idea is that you don't use shampoo on your hair because people in the no poo movement believe that using chemicals in your hair, which is essentially what shampoo is, is bad for your hair and it strips your hair of its natural oils or sebum oil as it's called which is what's produced in your hair follicles and besides we've only been using shampoo like this since like the 1930s so it's not very yeah, we've only been using do. toothpaste for 200 years but <laughs> before that everyone's teeth fell out yeah that's different though isn't it because we eat a lot more sugary foods these days so we kind of need the extra protection but with hair You don't. Nothing's really changed in the last 10,000 years. Okay, and is there anything similar about your natural replenishing oils, which is supposedly the case amongst those who believe you shouldn't wash at all? There is a a sort of a train of thought similar to that of the no-poo movement, and it surrounds your skin microbiome. Um, Microbiome. Microbiome, yeah. So you know, like, well, you remember... um, not that long ago, all these ads popping up and it was about your your gut bacteria, friendly bacteria and bad bacteria. And you had to basically drink yogurts to make sure that your poo came out. And this is yeah. basically the same idea. Look after your skin. Skin is the biggest organ in the body, for some, wink, wink. But uh, you <laughs> <laughs> you got to look after it. You've got to look after your skin microbiome. And the same as the no poo movement, by washing it with soap and chemically stripping your body, you're stripping it of the, of that natural... Uh, bacteria but i presume it is the natural microbiome which is the thing that smells if you don't wash yourself (laughs) it's actually an area that's very poorly understood and it's only now that scientists are starting to get a bit of an understanding of how important the skin's microbiome is there's one chap in particular a guy called dr james hamblin who's a lecturer at the yale school of public health he writes for the atlantic and he hasn't used soap for five years right he found that actually he smells a little bit more when he's stressed. And his theory, his idea is that your skin's microbiome uh, and the way that it smells, whether that's bad or good or just neutral or normal, is actually another way in which we communicate with each other. So, you know, with your partner, for example, most partners would say, oh, my partner, I like the smell of my other half. It's a nice smell. I like how they smell. And it's just a way of communicating. And just by washing, we're stripping all of that away. So what have you been doing for the last month? Because the challenge was don't wash at all. Well, this uh, smelly nerd, he uses water. I mean, this guy knows what he's talking about. So I didn't use soap, but I did use water. Okay. I mean, that's a bit of a cop-out, but I don't blame you. I would do the same thing. So what's your usual bathroom routine? Do you use shower gel, soap? <laughs> I, I do. I've got, like, a um, bit of detail. I get eczema on, on like, my arm folds. So I use a, a product called Sanex, which is, like, it's not it's not <laughs> this so... This is the most Alan Partridge we've ever got during this segment. <laughs> but it, I'm familiar it, with Sanex. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, I mean, but it is a, soap, it foams. It's a neutralised shower gel, fine. There okay, so that's what you usually use, and you weren't using that. Uh, and, and, and I wasn't using that. Uh, so, element of jeopardy. Is ooh. the eczema in Ollie's folds going to come back? Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. It's wow, a worry. Okay. No, genuinely, that's a worry. Like, I'm people not, with eczema I'm not try and manage it. it. You have to manage yeah. your eczema. So, day one, what was it like? In all fairness, the, the washing of the skin wasn't, wasn't that weird. I just sort of rinsed myself off with water. Uh, it, it was the hair. Like, because you, you, you walk out of the hair and it feels just a bit matted, because I use a uh, head and shoulders two in one, and when I um, step out you're of the a shower, busy man, you're on the move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With head and shoulders, you step out of the shower, and I have got smooth flowing locks. It's, you know, it's your L'Oreal moment. It's lovely. But I stepped out, and uh, yeah, it's just matted. And did you think I'm not going to look like I want to? 
Not really, but it's more about how you feel, actually. Because I, I, I yeah. don't like feeling gross. Uh, like, if I feel a bit... And, and bearing in mind, you know, it was summer. We were in summer when we were going into this yes. challenge. And also, if you remember, we went through an insane heat wave actually washed a couple of times a day on on some of the days. Just with water, but because... Because it, you weren't using soap. Yes. Did you have more body odour because you weren't using soap? Initially, yes. I changed tack, you see. I read a little bit uh, more from old James Hamblin, and he said, use a brush. Ugh. What do you mean, ugh? Not a fucking dustpan and brush. <laughs> what kind of brush then? Like a, Just a brush, like, like you a brush shower brush. What do you brush your hair with? No, like a shower brush. What do you mean brush? a shower brush? Ollie, body shop. You remember those wooden... Wood, 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 a brush oh, wooden I have br- seen those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. God. He was like, use one of those. I can picture Donald Duck now, 1950s, doing it. Exactly. It, it's really simple, actually, when you sort of like boil it down. If you think, when you're washing with soap, all you are doing when you're cleaning yourself is you're, you're using chemicals to strip your body of any dirt. Yes. So the idea of using a brush, you're just changing the method of doing that. It's just a mechanical way of cleaning your body rather than using yeah, chemicals. But, I mean, isn't there some friction I mean, you haven't got the lathering, lubricating middle client there, have you? It's actually quite nice. And then you uh, you feel exfoliated. I've got very, very smooth skin. I, I mean, even after the first couple of days. It's basically... Did you brush exfoli- your scrotum? Yeah, yeah, okay. So you want some detail, don't you? I mean, I, you know, I think we're all here for this. Uh, logistically, it's, it's borderline impossible to get up your crack and uh, down by your balls, and it's quite painful. So, being the innovative chap that I am, I... Why do I sense a Dragon's Den pitch? <laughs> hey, listen, if it is a Dragon's Den pitch, I'd like to pose this one as the bum brush. Okay, mm-hmm. the bum brush is basically a toothbrush. I used a toothbrush to clean my bits because it's perfect. Wow. Yeah, but it's perfect. I mean, we're, we're all stuck with that image now and there's nothing we can do about no, it. No, because it's, good, cause it's got the handle so you can reach yeah. around without too much effort. You get good mm. scrubbage going on down there. You can get behind your ball sack. So like the bit, you know, when it when they're dangling, the bit at the back, you can get a decent scrub in there. Was there any danger that it would get confused for your oral hygiene brush? No. <laughs> I mean, you must have made some really specific efforts in that department. I, I did actually have... <laughs> I did have a minor concern because whenever we... I don't know if you do this. I'm sure lots of people do this. But when you get an old toothbrush in your house... Yeah, it that, becomes that, the bathroom scrubber. It becomes the bathroom scrubber, right? Yeah, so it, very useful for grouting tiles. Yeah, and it's great for like uh, yeah, lime scale removal, all of that stuff. It's great for that. This is the beginning of the bum brush pitch. This so, is this is what you'd say to Deborah Mead. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I had to make it very, very clear to Pitt, my other half, yeah. if mm. you cannot use that brush to clean the bathroom because I'm using that for my arsehole. Was your concern, though, transferring the bathroom dirt to your bottom or vice versa or both? Just don't want to de-lime scale my ass, Ollie. Like, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, like, no, I'd I'm, imagine I'm it you. would sting quite a lot. Okay, good. So you'd come up with your novel solution for that, mm, that and 14 days had passed. And, well, I mean, did your other half mention anything at all about odour or appearance? No, and actually, I thought today, being the last day that I have to hold this up, I thought I'd actually just ask her and say, look, you can be honest with me now. Was it a problem? <laughs> and she said, the first couple of weeks... Your hair was disgusting. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah. She said that was horrible. And actually, one of the best ways to combat that, and this is a top tip, Ollie, top tip, is to brush your hair. But not with the brush that you use. No. Your not the arsehole brush. You brush it with a normal not brush. Not the grouting brush. No. Nope. Not the toothbrush. When your hair's and dry. And not the shower brush. Exactly. A fifth brush. You've got a fifth brush. <laughs> Basically. What else did she say? And the bum brush is disgusting, uh, having to look at yeah, the Yeah, it is disgusting. That was, that was yeah. basically the two things. But actually, she said you didn't smell. Now, uh, like, we, we both admitted, and she did tell me at the time, that there was, like, there were a couple of windows where I had some smelly pits. But that has eased, and I actually made my own deodorant. To I was going to ask about that, yeah. So if, if you've kind of interpreted this to mean a kind of no chemical, let's go green challenge mm. rather than literally let's not wash yeah then yeah i presume it was open to you to to put natural products onto your bits so so what did you make your deodorant from coconut oil baking yeah. soda and cornstarch yeah. mix it together Ugh. and can i just say that i mean it sounds like an amazing batter for chicken wings <laughs> 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 it's not what i want my pits to smell of i'm sorry <laughs> no but it just smells like coconut why would you not want your pits to smell like coconut mm. the deodorant actually works really really well you know, the month's over now. Are any of these changes permanent? 
I'm going to say semi-permanent, actually, because one of the things that it has made me realise is that I overwash. <laughs> and I think a lot of us do. One of the things that makes me feel like I live in the developed world is that I use a little bit too much product. Yeah. I definitely, like, it makes me feel sort of like I'm luxuriating to use probably too much more than my body needs. That's basically the the one thing I would take away from this is that I don't need to wash anywhere near as much as I was before. And actually, I'm going to just use a lot less soap and shampoo. Now, I, I, I said to you earlier that there was a little caveat. I did actually have to use shampoo and soap on one occasion midway through this challenge. But I feel I have a good excuse. My house flooded in a really bad rainstorm that we had and there was sewage downstairs. Now, I don't care, right, what... Dr. Hamblin says about your skin microbiome, there was no way it was going to fight off turds floating in my kitchen. So, <laughs> so I was chemically stripping all Just of that shit off. With your with your little brush. <laughs> yeah. So I, my brush didn't stand a chance against that. So I, I immediately got, got in the shower and I was scrubbing with all the chemicals I could get my hands on. Uh, if you've got a challenge uh, that you would like to put to Ollie of a trend you would like him to test out on the show, then do head over to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click Feedback. And uh, would you like to know what your challenge for next month is, Ollie? Yes, of course. It's from Manfan Leanne in Aberdeen who says, I read recently that three times as many people have started using Cameo over lockdown. So I thought it would be fun for Ollie to investigate what these people are using it for. Cameo. It's celebrities, celebrity videos or something. So basically, I mean, the whole concept makes me a bit sad, but basically it's people who were famous in the 80s mostly and a few people off TikTok Mm. who sell their services for a fixed fee. Yeah. Uh, Some of them it's like a tenner, some of them it's £100. And you pay them to, like, record a video message for you. Right. Why? Well, like, to say happy birthday, for example, Um, um, would be a, a standard use of it. It's like a, uh, but, a, a, an easy way when if you forget a birthday card, you can just... It's a cop-out. It's a red-letter day, isn't it? <laughs> That's what that is. It's like, oh, it's, fuck, what am I going to get them? I know, I'll get them this uh, Ferrari ride around a racetrack that no one's ever yeah. heard of. Yeah. So what I'm interested in Leanne's email is this suggestion of what else it can be used for. Right. Is there something other than birthday shout-outs that you'd use a celebrity from a soap opera to do? And what's in it for them, apart from the money... Like, you know, are people spreading love and happiness through this app or not? But anyway, it seems to me like the best way for you to really fully understand what's going on on Cameo is to spend some money there. Mm. So um, we have put aside, and this is not to be sniffed at. I mean, we're not operating with New York Times budgets here. We put aside £200 of the show's budget. Wow. Okay, yes. Yeah. I am. <laughs> I feel like Chris Tarrant. I am wire transferring you now, Ollie Pitt. £200. <laughs> Wow. And what we want you to do is to find out the most creative way to spend that £200 on Cameo. It'd actually be good to get a bit of inspiration and and, and uh, hear how other people have used this. So if you, if our listeners have used it, and used it particularly in creative ways, I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch. Yeah, at Ollie EP on Twitter, right? That's me. You remembered, but I spell it right. O-double-L-I-E. EP. Uh, thank you, Ollie. See you next month. See you next month. In a moment, my interview with another of our listeners, Lexi. Uh, But first, our record of the month. And if, as a teenager, you enjoyed the work of Meatloaf or My Chemical Romance, I have a soft spot for both of those artists, then you will definitely enjoy this. It's been keeping me amused all summer. Uh, Our record of the month is Poisoned Heart, and the band is Creeper. Me, I've got a poisoned heart Right from the start I have deceived you And you Stay away from me Kruger kills and dreams I'll steal them from you In the dark I'll creep to your heart Now, as you know, we absolutely love to get man fans onto this show telling their stories. It is 
brilliant when listeners write in and nominate themselves for interview and honestly it's been a real privilege for me getting to meet so many of you over the years and hear your different and diverse experiences some of which you've never shared anywhere um here is an email that we received from man fan lexi perry weston who is trans uh hi ollie when i started transitioning i scoured the internet for answers everything was bad I found that my NHS journey was extremely different to what I'd read online. I also found social transitioning and sexual transitioning very different too. I think it would be both extremely cool and helpful to be able to talk through my amazing, exciting, terrifying, difficult and painful journey so that others can know what to expect rather than blindly worrying. Uh, Well, that certainly pricked up my ears. Uh, and so we got Lexi on a Zoom call. That's what you're about to hear. It's worth noting, of course, you know, her story is just one of many transitioning stories out there. It is one person's experience. And like many of our conversations on this show, it's very honest. It goes to some challenging places. Check the show notes for details on that. Uh, it starts, perhaps surprisingly, at an office party. So it was in January, about five years ago that I'd finished training at a new job. I wasn't out, I wasn't socially transitioned, I was still male presenting in every single way. In a January night in a not particularly nice area of town, went for a work night out and turned up in seven inch blue heels that I still have but don't wear anymore. And the sort of like 50 style dress and ridiculous makeup and everyone was a bit surprised but no one seemed too fussed and then wow i mean do you remember that decision do you remember getting dressed for that evening (laughs) yeah you were used to wearing women's clothing out but never with your workmates and thinking this is going to stir some shit up or i have no choice i have to go like this what were you thinking there had been bits of conversation at work but nothing that sort of said yeah i am actually trans And I sort of just thought, this needs to happen. It was like, I'll do this. And if I lose my job, I'll lose my job. (laughs) I mean, in your head, you must have been thinking, just please not laughter, not catcalling, not gags. Yeah. A few people were just like, oh, I'm really happy for you. You feel comfortable to come out like this. I was very, very surprised by how supportive everyone was. And obviously that led to them then encouraging me to sort of come out and transition at work and they spoke to HR for me and then everyone else knew I was trans before I did. (laughs) So when you next went to work, did you come in in your male identity again? Yeah. Trousers, shirt, looking like a generic male. And then my trainer from that night out would come over and said, oh, um, I've spoken to HR. If you do want to sort of come in tomorrow, how you feel comfortable, just do it. So that's what I did. (laughs) That must have felt like an incredible change. You, you couldn't have been expecting that, even though it must have been nice for it to have happened. It was one of the very few times I think a drunken night out has worked out changing my life for the better, I can say. I guess there's just a lot of pressure to fit in, and I was worried that if you do transition, then that's all ev- anyone will ever see of you. And it's either they'll see you as a token minority, or they'll see you as someone who's going to potentially cause them problems by being trans and being a HR nightmare. So how did you feel the first time that you walked into work as Lexi then? Um, Somewhere between absolutely terrified and ecstatic. It was the most awkward day of my life. I looked like absolute crap because I'd not really done makeup for work before, so everything was ridiculously overdone and I looked awful and I just felt uncomfortable being at work but extremely comfortable that I didn't have to put on a pair of trousers that I hated just to be in a job. And of course it's, it's one thing isn't it with your colleagues who've already expressed support for you it's another thing sort of going on the bus as Lexi for the first time walking down the street. Yeah or as you used to random people yelling shit at me on the street so it wasn't it wasn't unusual for me um I guess the severity just sort of ramps up when you you're you're trans like you just go to the shops and people would yell shit at you people would like what because I'd understand you know kids muttering under their breath 
you know, I can't imagine someone shouting abuse at you. What what sort of thing? I, oh, you're a disgusting faggot, or oh, you're a disgusting tranny. Oh, look at this person faking being a woman. It, and it'd be that sort of stuff, but yelled. Like, kids actually weren't that bad, because they would just ask their parents. But it, mm. a lot of people felt very entitled to just shout what they thought of me. One of the things people always say when, when you come out as trans is, oh, that's so brave. And it's sort of like, well, it's not brave. You either transition or you kill yourself. That was sort of the reality of it for me. So when people are yelling shit, you just, you just have to be like, fuck them. I'm doing this. Okay, so you transitioned at work, but had you transitioned with your friends and family yet? I hadn't at that time. It took me about a year or so to fully speak to my family but they had a good indication already, so I don't think anything was too much of a surprise to them. I'd always worn skirts and dresses anyway, I guess, because I grew up as painful as it is for me to remember, like as a complete goth kid. So gender norms were already a bit skewed in that, so it gave me sort of the freedom to express my gender identity more. Okay, so if we'd have met you when you were 12, 13, you'd have been dressed in the whole kind of, what, like Cradle of Filth gear, basically? Wearing a black trench coat in 30 degree heat, yeah. <laughs> okay. What, what was your name? What was your birth identity? I don't give out my birth identity, my birth name. Why? It's irrelevant. It's dead to me. It's I've grieved over that part of my life. When I see things from that part of my life now, it doesn't even seem like me. I've seen pictures of myself and not even recognised myself because I'm just so dissociated with that part of my life I guess it's like when you hear a song that you haven't heard for ages and you're saying oh yeah I remember this for me it's like that if someone talks about something I'll remember it but I don't think I really think about any of my pre-transition life and unless it really comes into a normal natural conversation so then you decided you wanted to transition surgically as well as socially what did you do next I did what anyone does when they're not really sure of anything which is I googled it I think I just put in how to transition something very generic what did you see just all sorts of crap about hormones what you should take who you should like listen to how some clinicians were really terrible people and how if you don't look feminine enough then you won't get treated I guess for a lot a lot of people, it was a very negative experience for them. I mean, transitioning is relatively new in terms of actually being accepted for most people. I think I'm quite lucky that I am relatively accepted in transitioning, where for a lot of people, you weren't. And I think, and well, I know that it was so different years ago that I think a lot of people are still sharing those opinions. Plus, in different countries, it's not as great and I think people just feel like they need need to voice that opinion more whereas in the UK in my experience it, it was nothing like I could find online about how it works in the UK at all. So what was it like? What was the first thing? I guess you go and see a GP? Yeah so I literally just sort of sat down and went so I want to transition and he just went oh okay and then just went I guess I'll do a referral for you and that was it and then it was receiving letters and waiting. <laughs> waiting for how long? Uh, for me, it was two years. Two years? Yeah. And this is to a gender dysphoria clinic? Yeah, I think most people just refer it as, as the gender clinic or the um, clinic for transgender health. But yeah, but that's just for your initial appointment as well. So that might not actually lead to much for some people. But the whole process, if you want to do it through the NHS needs to be done in association with one of those clinics doesn't it so you don't you have no choice but to wait for those two years yeah yeah you you have to wait you say that's just for your first consultation so literally they didn't know anything about you apart from your name yeah and then the second appointment tends to be a few weeks later which is another clinician to sort of confirm that you you sort of have the same story that you, you you know you are trans and sort of what stage you're at and what were you seeing as the end goal I don't want to be indelicate about this, but I mean, you're talking about <laughs> surgery as the end goal. Yeah. You're talking about genital surgery. Yeah, that was and is the, the end goal, really. So for those two years that you're waiting for that consultation, that's two further years without that happening, where 
I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, did you feel any less like Lexi? No. I think, for me, I found the two years a bit positive. So before then, my life felt very up and down. Whereas for those two years, I had something to look forward to. And it helped me sort of explore myself more. And I guess it gave me the time to do that and to fully socially transition, have awkward conversations with people and sort of deal with all that before I had the appointment. Coming out to my parents and saying, by the way, I'm your daughter now, and having to have conversations with them about how they should be referring to me. And then I guess the only reaction I remember from my mum was just, you're, you're really going to struggle to find employment. Did that hurt you when she said that? I don't think it hurt me so much as made me question whether it was the right decision. Because she genuinely obviously did feel it would be an obstacle. Yeah, she she definitely thought that it would stop me getting jobs, stop me getting promotions, that I would just be treated as sort of a token minority. Um, so she was genuinely concerned about my livelihood. What did you say to her? It was sort of, I, I have to do this, I don't have a choice, it's it's this or I'll end up dead in the ground. And your partner at the time, from his point of view, he was in a gay relationship. Yeah. And did he know that you were into, you know, wearing dresses and had a different identity that you were burgeoning into at all? Yeah. When I met him, it was when I was at university. Like, makeup was part of my daily routine. Skirts and dresses were the mainstay of probably my wardrobe, except going to work. But it sort of very quickly soured and pretty much ended the relationship, which it was a very sort of shitty process, really. So talk me through that first appointment when you did actually get through to the gender clinic and you you had your first consultation. What happens? They just sort of ask you when you decided to transition, ask you about sort of how comfortable you are with your genitals, if you have any hatred towards them, what your sex life's like, if you're comfortable with that. It's those sorts of questions. My clinician was just open with me and said, look, it's not like how it used to be. We just want to know where you are and help you transition in whatever way that is, whether it's surgery, not surgery, however it is you want to be yourself. I remember driving home. I'd got just outside of the city centre and I had to pull over and I cried for about an hour and a half. I just cried because it was so emotional just to actually feel like yeah this is actually gonna gonna work and I'm gonna get to be me after that appointment it was the second one and then for me that was starting hormone treatment which starts off as just sort of tablets you take every day were you similarly excited to be doing that or did you have some reservations about basically putting drugs into your body oh no I was super hyped I was like yeah, within like a year I'll actually have boobs that aren't fake and yeah, that was like the most exciting thing in the world for me Um, most things I understood was it was like going through puberty again and I would say that's pretty much the case as things started developing I noticed the physical changes in my body like gentle strength and you get breast development then it, it started I definitely started feeling more like myself and a lot happier how much more of your life will you go taking any kind of corrective medication? The rest of my life. Really? When you start medically transitioning, because it can cause you to become sterile, you have to sign loads of forms and they have to explain all the effects. And when you start taking hormones, if you don't take them properly, that can also cause effects. So you sort of get told that you'll be on this probably for the rest of your life. The only thing you're not is the testosterone blocker, which post-surgery you obviously don't need anymore. Once you're on the drugs, how long is it that you had to wait? So I waited a year and a half. From what I know, I'm one of the fastest to go through. Um, Why? Why were you fast-tracked? Because I'd already socially transitioned. There weren't any obvious issues for me that were... It wasn't as if there were things that were complicating my feelings towards transitioning. There weren't any mental health problems caused by transitioning. 
so for me there was no doubt that I was trans I wanted to transition and there would be no regret or negative effects if I did when I actually was getting to the point of meeting my surgeon it was you have to choose which surgeon you're going to have I went to the gender clinic one day and they just gave me a list of four names I think and said research which one you would like to have performing your surgery how do you go about that how do you research into surgeon I'm not on trip advisor no it was the most surreal moment that I think I had in the whole of my trans life was just being told I had to choose which surgeon which person was going to cut me up and I basically just relied on reddit to point me to the right direction and I ended up choosing the one I felt actually gave a shit about trans people the most (laughs) that was what it boiled down to for me they set you down talk to you about well they ask you how much you know about um, the actual surgery then they just talk you through exactly what happens in the surgery you then get taken into another room and they basically just say take your tights and underwear off and then it's lots of tugging and pulling and measuring to see if you've got enough skin there to actually allow you to have the the surgery so that you'll have enough depth after surgery it was an odd sensation I don't think it's anything that anyone I know who's not trans can particularly relate to but it's a I I don't think it was too exposing It, it you felt very comfortable there I would say so when do you think you might get the surgery? Mine sort of depends on COVID now because <laughs> it sort of delayed me getting um, laser hair removal done. So it's between a year and three years, I think. If it hadn't been for COVID, it probably would have been in about a year to 18 months. How does it feel to know that it, it may still be three years until you've fully transitioned? For me, I'm already a woman. I label myself as female on everything I do. So... The transitioning isn't going to change that for me. Do you feel very confident and comfortable now in female environments? Y- yeah, I, I feel completely comfortable going in any female environments. Most of mine have been sort of just work-related and, I guess, going to a shop and trying on clothes and no one's ever had issues. It might have been occasionally where someone said, would you mind using the disabled? And I tend to just do it and just to make it easier for myself because you sort of just have to choose your battles in the end because if you fight every battle it's very exhausting so what's the subtext there someone's seen you and twigged that you're trans and they don't give the context they just say would you mind using the disabled changing area yeah i've had it in sort of like nightclubs before as well um well they'll just tell you you're only allowed to use the disabled toilet it is bullshit, the whole bullshit of, uh, oh, well, you you could just be faking being a trans to see women. And it's like, no, like, no one does that. And there's no stats for that to back that up. It's just bullshit. I, I used to fight it really, really hard. Now I just tend to not ask anyone. And I'll just, if they say I have to use a disabled changing room, I'll just do it because it's just, it's too exhausting to fight it all the time. Do you think there's a sense of living up to other people's expectations of what being trans is? Yeah, that it sort of relates back to feeling like you have to look hyper-feminine all the time. When you come out as trans, and you, I still get it now, where you just sort of feel like, do I look like I'm enough for people? Do I look like I'll be feminine enough for people? Will people actually even believe that I'm trans? And what do they actually think? is trans and am I fulfilling that it's always been in the back of my mind whenever I've been out at all like am I trans enough for this it was the same when I met my partner's friends but dating I guess it was harder but I think there were more misconceptions and about what being trans is when I was dating and living up to those standards such as what I guess for a lot of people, when they think about trans people, a lot of really visible trans people are pretty people for trans women, I guess I'm referring to. And they don't sort of think about the fact that actually the majority of trans people are just like the majority of non-trans people. We're just sort of your average looking people. They all think that we've had like 
facial feminizing surgery and we're all like stick thin and you know because we've had to try so hard to look female when reality is not that at all dating when you're trans it's very complicated (laughs) so i kept having a debate with myself as whether like you sign up to any dating app or website like whether you very openly say hey by the way i'm trans or if you don't because realistically in my head it wasn't that relevant but then you then had to have that awkward conversation down the line and then there would be times if you were on a night out and you met someone you liked you just sort of had to have that awkward conversation so it gets very weird very quickly and then there are those who just want to date trans people and that's probably the worst bit yeah we covered that on the show with alex before trans people particularly pre-surgery trans people are fetishized as well yeah and you know that might be good for the person who's looking for that exact thing it makes you feel a bit like a product (laughs) if you're the person who's being sold that way rather than just going on a date so i always thought i'm not really like suffering gender dysphoria that much I, I feel quite comfortable in what what and who I am and it wasn't until I started dating and actually meeting people who would date me for a few months just to get what they wanted out of it because they were transvestitious that I really then started suffering with like a severe lack of confidence about my identity really as a trans woman did you date any straight men who when they went on a date with you didn't know that you were trans <laughs> yeah two uh one person i went on a date with it was just like a pub date and they ended up talking about how you sometimes start talking to girls online and they're trans and slated trans people for 20 minutes <laughs> right in front of me so i made out with him in the car park and then went by the way i'm trans and just left <laughs> what did he say um, he texted me and just sort of said, what the fuck? And then I just blocked his number and just ignored him. <laughs> and did you have any positive dating experiences in that time? When you're trans, it's very easier to pick barriers up about being trans and make it into this massive big deal that it doesn't have to be. But at the same time, you sort of just have to accept that for a lot of cisgendered straight men, that being with a trans woman isn't always the right option for them and that's okay uh for me when i met my current partner they didn't know i was trans we'd been talking for a few days i told them and they just went okay well, let's just go on a date what's it like on the phone um and i'm asking that because of course we're an audio podcast and actually throughout this interview i've been looking at you and on webcam you look like a woman i'm, I'm talking to a woman but of course people listening to this you probably sound more trans than you look if you see what i mean have you had the thing on the phone where you've had to correct the gender pronoun or yeah, I mean, I, wo- I work in a call centre, so I very often get, oh, thank you, sir, and I'm just like, damn, again. But I, I've just, I stopped caring. I'm, I know that my voice is male to androgynous. I did have vocal therapy, I think it was called, to make myself sound more female, but... It just didn't really feel me. It felt very fake and artificial, and I didn't feel it really represented who I was. It represented, again, an ultra-feminine view on being trans, and Mm. I just... It's a lot of effort to remember to do that. I mean, it's, like... It's so hard to just change your voice completely and do it all the time. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, irony, really, that by trying to be more of yourself you could end up acting a part. Yeah. They, they, I mean, they said, like, you don't want to sound like some sort of, like, Barbie. You want to sound sort of like a voice that fits you naturally. But for me, it just sort of ended up feeling that I was faking who I was. I mean, my voice has changed. There's no question about it. Like, my voice used to be, like, the deepest voice you would ever think of for any guy. Like, my voice was that deep. So it's changed, but... It's, it's not as changed as perhaps people would think. And it's also not something that changes a medication, whereas a lot of people, me included, thought that that was something that just changed, that it doesn't. <laughs> What's your relationship like with your family now? Have they got used to you being Lexi? Yeah, everyone's, like, 
completely used to it. Birthday cards are like for my daughter. It was a bit of a journey because it's a bit of remembering to call me daughter. It would be remembering to call me Sheen or he when we were out. But it, it wasn't horrific. And I was very proud of my parents and how quickly they came to terms with it. Was there an element of you asking them to take down old photos of you as well? No, there's not really that much of me anyway. Oh, because you're a goth. <laughs> this is true. This They're is probably true. really pleased you're not a goth. <laughs> I mean, that that's definitely true. I guess it's just like, it's not mine to tell them to take down. Like, if they've got photos of me, that's their memories. Like, when they have pictures of us at Christmas and stuff, it's not things I want hidden. It's just not stuff I actively want to look at. Like, my house has nothing from pre-transitioning except my graduation photo my parents house still has stuff with me as a kid because that's the family memories like i've never needed to it doesn't bother me i guess what about childhood friends even if you don't see them i mean on facebook or whatever is is there an acceptance there or even a, a feeling of you're a bit of a novelty you know you're my trans friend i didn't keep in touch with anyone from my school at all however I then have had people add me for the same reason that you've just stated of being a novelty. It was people who'd get in touch with me and be like, oh yeah, look, you're trans now. You're, you must be so happy. You look really good and blah, blah, blah. Is that generally something that you have to be wary of? Yeah, you do have to sort of work out if people want to know you because of who you are and what you stand for and your personality and your interests or whether it's because oh, they're trans, they have really interesting stories and they must be something I can talk about. And I've definitely found that I've had the latter. And again, I think that's something that came up more in dating than, I guess, in friendship. I mean, I had, I guess, two relationships that lasted for a couple of months last year that I thought were genuine relationships. And it turned out that both of those people were fetishists who wanted to be with me because I was trans and actually in reality didn't really give a shit about who I was and would really try and hide the fact that they were dating me. One night we were in bed and they were just like, oh yeah, I've always wanted to try this stuff but I was never into the gay stuff so I thought this will fulfill everything I need. So that was, I guess, one experience. Another was just someone who wanted to just sort of be in control of a trans woman and care for them because they need to be looked after because they've got so much going on for them. It's something I've still never got my head around, but I encountered so many times of people sort of saying they'll make the decisions because they're the man and because you're trans, you are less than them. So you, you sort of do what they want. You said earlier that transitioning wasn't really a choice because it was that or take your own life. I assume you meant that literally. Have you ever had those feelings since you started transitioning? Yeah. Um, I ha- I've had sort of suicidal feelings slash a s- suicide attempts since due to a pretty poor experience I had, which is sort of related to being trans. I don't want to make you talk about it if you don't want to. Oh, I can talk about it. It's fine. <laughs> what happened? I'd broken up with a guy, another shitty relationship. So I decided to just sort of go out and get with someone and just sort of get myself over it or under it, so to speak. So I went back to someone's house. They were very aware I was trans and because it was pretty much a hookup, I wasn't particularly bothered about it. I was just like, it's someone I'll never see again. And then, so when I got there, it was, um, I sort of changed my mind. I didn't want to do it. I sort of thought, this isn't going to help me get over the ending relationship I've had. But that person just, in their words, said, you're trans, you'll do what I want. You're a trans bitch, you'll do what I want. And decided no was no longer an option. And so just raped me pretty much <laughs> have you spoken about this much before yeah if i mean i've had counseling for it i went to the police but 
I mean, there was no evidence either way, so I decided not to take it further. But I mean, I've been through rape counselling for it, and um, it's not something that affects me any longer to such a significant amount. But at the time before I got help, it was incredibly hard because they raped me because I was trans. It made it even harder for me to just accept myself as being trans and not think that that was always going to happen. There was definitely an element of thinking that, well, you're trans, so you know this is a risk and you know that people, well, a lot of men will just use you for sex because they have a fetish for it. So it's your own fault. And then there was also the side of me thinking, well, this is always going to happen. I'm never going to be normal. I'm never have a normal relationship because I'm trans. I'm just this thing for people to use and get bored of. And that's how it felt for a long time. It must be the most amazingly uh, positive feeling to have a relationship now that's so different to that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's still weird for me. Very weird. Like, actually not having to be uncomfortable about sex now is incredibly weird. I still cannot get used to it. My partner doesn't understand the big deal, but it very much is to me still. <laughs> And you said you, you just don't think about the earlier part of your life, about your former identity. So, I mean, Lexi, in a sense, is five years old. Yeah. What's been a great day as Lexi? When you look back on your life now, do you have happy memories? I mean, it's a cliche, I guess, but just, I don't know, like going for the first date with my partner now, I guess that's one of the happiest times going out was we literally just went for drinks stayed over where we live now and I remember just how well I did my makeup for once which I can never seem to get right ever again and how my hair didn't look like a horrific mess for once and I just looked really nice and I I, I do sort of love looking back at things like that and I guess any times we've just been out and had a nice evening I guess they're there what my memories are now. I mean this has been a really odd experience for me interviewing you because Every bone in my body is telling me not to ask you the questions that I'm asking you. If I met you in public, if I noted that you were trans, rather than just accepting you as a woman, like I say, to me, you're presenting as a woman anyway on this webcam. Do you feel comfortable with people asking you anything to do with... I mean, you know, no one asks me anything about my my gender as a man. Certainly not people who don't know me. I think there's two sides to this. So I'm very open about it because I that's sort of how I've learned to deal with it. That's how I've learned to deal with people asking questions. And actually now I'm sort of quite happy to talk about it because it's the only way people can get educated if they don't understand things. Like at work, I've always been super open about it. And it also makes it easier if I'm having an off day in terms of sort of random people I've had it before where someone's just sort of come up to me and touched part of my body and said, have you had surgery there yet? And what? Yeah, that that's a bit harder to deal with. And I'm less OK with because that's more invasive, I guess, when it's actually well, no, that's harassment. I mean, that is sexual yeah. harassment. Yeah, there will be people listening to this, obviously, with this episode title in particular, who are trans or think that they want to transition what are your top tips? What are the do's and don'ts that you've learnt along the way? I guess the most important do is just always remember to be true to yourself throughout the entire thing. Don't let other people's perceptions of what you should be change who you are. Never feel like you have to do something because you are trans for someone else's entertainment or pleasure or sexual pleasure. And I guess just have a shitload of patience because there's a hell of a lot of waiting around being trans but just use that time to explore who you are and what you're comfortable with and happy with and try and make it as positive an experience as you can because you are the only one who can lexi perry weston and remember if you've been affected by the difficult issues that she was discussing there's always someone to talk to the number for the samaritans is in our show notes and if you're trans and lexi's story either resonated with you or you have a different take on transitioning from your experiences 
we'd love to hear from you too. Head to the feedback page at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, up next, your sex questions. Alex Fox will be searching for the holy grail, the biodegradable condom. Does it exist? Find out after this. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your questions of sex have never sounded so perky. It is time for The Foxhole with Alex Fox. Hello, Ollie. And yet, not wearing makeup today. And I would not raise that. I would not be so ungentlemanly to raise it. And in fact, I think you look great. But you oh, did true. mention it. Uh, and so I'm, I feel compelled to ask you why. Uh, yes, well, I did have to shower in a great hurry before logging on to our call today because for the second time, uh, I managed to, uh, in a rush trying to clear my house, I moved a large scented candle and basically did an amateur attempt at embalming myself. Whoa, 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 whoa. You spilt it over your face? No, I spilt it all over my carpeted floor, all over a suitcase, all down my front. It splashed back into my hair. I had it in my eyelashes. How? I was so covered in wax that there are medieval letters with uh, family crest stamps onto them that are jealous of the amount <laughs> that I, I was covered with. Sure, I didn't even ask what an Alex Fox scented candle smells of, but I don't know if I want to know. No, thankfully, it's honey nectar. Um, it doesn't smell of my vagina or anyone else's. Time for your questions of sex, anyway. Uh, and it's uh, this from Anonymous Lady who says, Alex, please can you give me some advice on how to be more eco-friendly when having sex? My partner and I are very environmentally conscious and have been trying to shop ethically using zero-waste shops and switching to plastic-free brands. However, I can't help but notice that this is less easily managed in the bedroom. We've recently started using condoms again after giving up with hormonal contraception. I've tried the copper morena coil as well as several pills. And although condoms are currently working well for us, I can't help but notice the unnecessary waste it creates. Is there a plastic-free or eco-friendly version of a condom? And if so, is it still as effective? Um, now, I should uh, preface your answer, Alex, by saying we did answer a similar question in 2017, uh, Series 3, Episode 10, if you want to go and check it out. Uh, and your solution to the person who wrote in then was lambskin condoms and solar-powered dildos. Uh, <laughs> what's new? Yes, we have covered uh, eco-sex issues a little bit before. I think I remember talking about knob-essence, highly polished wooden butt plugs and, yeah, recycling your sex toys. I took this opportunity to do a really deep delve into the world of eco-condoms and get super geeky because this is actually a great excuse. I've had some burning questions about the biodegradability of condoms. I had a sneaky suspicion having seen more and more condoms advertised as being green there seemed to be an assumption that because they involved latex as an ingredient that they would biodegrade so i spoke to uh, gabrielle lodz who's from a relatively new company called the green condom club and she had also clocked a real lack of transparency about ingredients and manufacturing processes in the condom world now because a condom is a medical device transparency is one of the things i do look for when <laughs> but yeah, because condoms are a medical device, that means that they're not obliged by law to reveal the ingredients that go into them. And Gabrielle quite mm. rightly pointed out that if you're somebody who uh, is concerned with ecological ethics uh, and you want to know what's going into, say, the skincare cream that's going on your face then you might right. rightly also want to know what's going into your other place, especially when you consider that the vagina is full of mucous membranes, which makes it, it can absorb things very easily. You've got heat going yeah. on there. You've got friction during sex. Um, if there are yeast infections or uh, any like micro tears or anything, but basically there is so much going on in that area of the body 
that means it could be hypersensitive to chemicals. Yeah, I mean, there is no other sort of uh, situation where people are so willing to just insert some unknown plastic substance into an open crevice on their body, is there? But it's become something we've all become very accustomed to. Exactly. Basically, if you are looking for a condom that biodegrades in the way that maybe you'd expect your carrot peelings or your vegetable scraps to break down in your compost box, that currently does not exist. And mm. in a way, that's a good thing because you don't want your condom to biodegrade too fast. It has to be fairly robust to provide a full barrier between two bodies. And if you factor in the knowledge that vaginal fluids are slightly acidic, you've got a different pH of semen. Again, you've got all of that friction. And also how long they can stay in a drawer. Well, I mean, you know, if you're buying a large pack, it could be a couple of years, couldn't it, in some scenarios? And, you know, that's not something that you're going to want to be worried about degrading. No, in fact, it is the law that condoms have to have at least a five-year shelf life. So it's quite yeah. difficult to make something that will magically biodegrade when you're done with it, but also has the qualities to last as long as, as is required of it by law. And that is why there's maybe some vagueness and, and greenwashing going on. Latex sap can biodegrade under the right conditions. It ideally needs quite a lot of oxygen, so it needs to be open to the air uh, and the right temperatures. Those circumstances aren't always present in, say, landfill. So you might pop your condom in the bin thinking, this is fine, it's going to rot. Actually, it could take four, five years or longer. If you're really concerned about your condoms biodegrading, perhaps the best way to deal with them is to put them in your own compost heap. Um, if you are mm. lucky enough and privileged enough to be able to have one. I live in a first floor flat. Um, I think if I started up some kind of <laughs> personal condom compost uh, facility in where I live, that would not be looked upon kindly by my neighbours <laughs> whatsoever. But even then, there's no guarantee that they're going to break down quickly. If you live somewhere, say, like Alaska, that's very cold, then your condom and and all of its contents could be hanging around for quite some time. You've also got the packaging to think about. Those little foil packets that condoms come in uh, have to be plastic coated yeah. to make them resilient and protective enough for real world usage. As much as sex educators bang on that you shouldn't keep condoms in your wallet, you should keep them in a tiny tin, etc, etc. We know that most people do just pop one in their purse. They sit on it. It's at the bottom of a handbag for a long time. Um, the wrappers have to be able to deal with that. Um, and, at the and again, you have legal constraints here you have um quality control that such products have to live up to so we don't have a solution yet for a fully recyclable mm. packet the boxes so is anyone working on this stuff there's quite a lot of investment being made in something called tough hydrogels now hydrogels are made from materials that um consist mostly of water held together by uh, molecular chains called polymers we already have hydrogels in the world working now in the form of soft contact lenses that allow your eyes to breathe oh, yeah. because they're, they're, they're predominantly made of H2O, so they get along with the surface of the eye. Those are notoriously quite delicate, though, so they wouldn't be suitable for, for use in a condom. But there's a project called Project Geldom going on in Australia uh, where scientists are trying to make a tougher, stretchier membrane uh, that feels very much like like skin or tissue that you can just wrap around your wang. Millions of dollars have gone into it. Unfortunately, because of all the medical testing that has to go on, the, the understandably um, strident stipulations on quality control with things like this, it takes a long time and a lot of money for real progress to be made. Um, one of the testing criteria at the moment for hydrogels, tough hydrogels, is actually whether or not they're effective at, actually, uh, at blocking the transmission of sperm, bacteria and viruses. So we're still fairly low. That's important one. Yeah, exactly. We're still yeah. fairly low down on the, the chain of progress there. Some limited progress has been made in the outside packaging so you've got recycled cardboard boxes uh you've got wrappers yeah. now made from corn starches um some lubricant companies uh for example meg matthews has a range called meg's menopause uh, all of her bottles are made from the byproducts of sugarcane manufacture which make them a lot more ecologically sound so there are baby steps being taken here 
But then that can be good, can't it? Brands trying to make a difference, but then they're accused, as you started by saying, of greenwashing, aren't they? If the core product itself is still something that legally cannot biodegrade. So it's sort of between a rock and a hard place in a way. (laughs) Well, that's where condoms live. (laughs) Hard places are their natural habitats. I absolutely applaud companies making real steps within the confines of this particular manufacturing process to genuinely do what they can. I think that's different to misrepresenting a product as being super green and biodegradable when in fact that product may well be hanging around for years and years and years. A rubber condom ultimately still is better for the environment than uh, one made of plastics like uh, polyisoprene. Most condoms are made from natural rubber latex, but what you might want to do is look out for those that don't have lots of additional ingredients. Um, So you, you maybe don't want ones that have got parabens in or spermicide or benzocaine, which is a, a mild anaesthetic that's used in numbing condoms that are designed to help men last a bit longer in bed. Um, There are condom companies as well that are making moves to do things that are good for the world and good for humanity um, in other ways. Uh, For example, there's one called Sustain, uh, which has certified B corporation status. And that's a legal standard that means the business interests of investors balance with those of the environment, their employees and their customers. So condom offsetting, basically. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. Uh, And there's another company called Sir Richard's brilliant Uh, they're vegan (laughs) condoms and for everyone sold they donate one in the developing world there are lube companies like Good Clean Love who produce the world's first ever carbon neutral lubricant and on that note actually another vote for one of my most favoured sex toy companies Doxy wand vibrators are made in Cornwall so there are no air miles personally for me to provide jumbo jet power to my clip if you have a question of sex for Alex Fox you need to send it through via our website modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click on the feedback form and if you want to follow Alex on social media where can we find you I am at Alex Fox spelled A-L-I-X-F-O-X And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Jake from Bolton, whose partner Mags says, Ollie, we've been huge fans of your show for three years. We recommend you to anyone looking for a new podcast and have finally got around to sending you some beer money. Uh, we would be over the moon if you would consider Jake as ambassador for his hometown of Bolton. Even though we don't live there anymore, it's where we met and where our love for the modern man began. This feels like a wedding speech. <laughs> I'm welling up. Uh, Jake, I now appoint you ambassador for Bolton. Congratulations. Uh, that's it for now. Our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we will see you with something new on October the 10th. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.